Hi, my name is Kapamayel Pala and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Enon Health. I have something very important and personal to share with all of you. Earlier this year, I found out that I had early stage, moderately aggressive prostate cancer. As a young black male with no prior known medical history in my family of this condition, I was significantly under the usual age to be screened for this condition. And for those that know me well, I say that my angels were looking out and the fact that I got screened early and this was not missed. I'm happy to tell all of you today that I am cancer free. We found it. I had great treatment and I've recovered. But this issue is a significant issue, not just in men's health, but for black men. Prostate cancer is the leading cancer amongst men generally in the U.S. population. But black men are screened later than other populations, have moderately or more aggressive prostate cancer than other populations, and are dying more from this than others. And it's something that is not talked about as much as I think needs to. And I'm here to share my story with the hope that this information gets out that we could get more people screened, and that ultimately people don't lose family members and friends to this. To do this podcast, I brought in my very good friend, Dr. Ahmad Garrett-Price. He's a board-certified family physician. He's a black man, one of our top family physicians in the country, and deals with this issue with his patient population. And I really wanted him to bring not just the clinical view, but the context around this as I share my journey. I hope that you enjoy this and that you share this information with your loved ones so that we can spare people's lives and that we can all have the opportunity to live our fullest, fullest lives. Thank you. Welcome to this season finale of the In On Health podcast. I am so pleased to have my good friend, Dr. Ahmad Garrett-Price, with me today, with us today, to share more with me about my cancer journey, to bring his clinical expertise and experience to my journey and giving context around what I've been through, and also for us to get the word out for other men, and specifically black men, about this issue um, that is so, so important in our community. Right. Well, thank you for having me, KP. Love your podcast. Feel fortunate and blessed to be on here. So I'd love to participate. So thank you. Great. Yeah. So for my listeners, as you've heard in the intro, I found out earlier this year I had early stage, moderately aggressive prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Not afraid to share my age. I'm 42 years old. I'm healthy. I exercise regularly. No known history of this in my family. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a shock when I found out that I, I, when I got this diagnosis. And so, you know, I feel really lucky because usually in my context, screening wouldn't start until maybe 55. Exactly. And we're th talking if I was at stage two at 42, mm -hmm. we know that I could have been in a real situation if not for the blessing of getting screened early. Exactly. And so what I would like to do for our listeners is First, I want them to get to know a bit about you and why I brought you onto this show with me mm -hmm. um, for this deeply personal episode. But then two, I really want you to bring some context around my journey and what's going on with black men and why this issue is 
not just prostate cancer, but cancer in general. This has been in the news. Even some very high profile, some of our most excellent and talented people are getting caught by this thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so, look. Before we go into all that, I love for our listeners to get to know you. So, start by telling me a little bit about your background and what led you into medicine and specifically family practice. Yeah. Thank you for that question. You know, I've always had a passion for helping others from a very young age. Matter of fact, if you meet my mother, she'll tell you that I think I was like three or four and I was like, hey, I'm going to be a doctor. And, and I stuck with that wow. um, for my whole life. And really the inspiration bore out of really two what I call heroes in my life. My grandfather wasn't a, cl a clinician. He was actually a Navy shipman. Um, so a lot of discipline and still very early. And he was a leader in his community. He was originally from East Texas, a smaller town in Texas. Okay. And my father, I call him my grandfather because he actually adopted my father uh, when he was very young. So my father was originally from the Bay Area, moved to East Texas, went on to become a clinician from this small town. So the passion of seeing them it be pillars in their community and help others right. uh, really resonated with me. And my mom was a nurse, so the, totally a, a, a family kind of motivational situation for me. And, you know, I just kind of grew up seeing them help each other, seeing them be pillars in their community. My dad attended uh, Baylor Medical School. Oh, so your father's also a physician. So your father's a physician, your mother's a nurse, there's, there's health care in the family. Exactly. And, and kind of leadership, but also using that to be leaders in the community and be impactful and kind of drive change. So that, that really bought me into medicine. And I saw medicine as a conduit, if you will, to be able to do that, not only in clinical ways, but also in non-clinical ways. So I, I realized that it would give me the bandwidth to do so. Mm -hmm. So from day one, this is something that I always wanted to do, something that I saw growing up. I don't, I wouldn't say that it was impressed or pressed on me, mm -hmm. but I just understood, you know, just from, I didn't understand it at the time, just from reactions that I would see, like people would come in not doing so great. They leave, they feel better. And that really resonated with me. And this is like, I want to be able to do that one day. And I just really stuck with it. Tell us a bit about your, your college and medical experience, because you went to historical black college and you obviously did very, very well. You're you know one of the brightest students in your university and then did very well in med school. But I want to hear about that journey. And then also not so many people choose family medicine anymore. Mm -hmm. So I would love to get some context around that choice that you made. Yeah. You know, I proud graduate of a um, historically black college and university, HBCU, Morehouse, go Tigers, right? There Class of 2004. And I really arrived at that decision because, again, I think I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a physician. So the next thought process, and I should say that I you know, was an athlete in college, played soccer. Morehouse had a great soccer team as well. Not that that had a lot to do with this. I found that out later. But the primary decision maker was that we had a pre-freshman program, mm. you know, kind of run by the legendary uh, <clears throat> Dr. Thomas J. Blocker at Morehouse. And if you look him up, he's been responsible for a number of black men being placed in top level medical schools. So I knew that was accepted into that pre-freshman program, had an opportunity to get college credits, but also get exposure to 
what it would actually take to right. make it to that next level, which is so important. And so matriculated through Morehouse, was a biology major. We have a strong science and mathematics department. I spent four years there. Ended up, yes, joining the soccer team, but I was also an Oprah scholar, so I was academic, athletic scholarship. Oh, but wait, let's, let's so tell people more about that. You're an Oprah scholar. Tell us, what is that? So Oprah has donated to colleges around the world, but definitely to Morehouse, HBCU. And so there's this pool of funds and grants that have been established to really, you know, pay for students' education in school. And so I was fortunate enough to be selected midway through my freshman year. She is a great donor to our university, so we definitely want to recognize that. Amazing. And so she's put a lot of black men through HBCUs, whether you know that's a widely known fact or not, but specifically at Morehouse. So I was fortunate to be in that pool of uh, students, actually participate in her last season finale show. Oh, on her show? Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think that was before social media age, but that was a great experience. Right. So shout out to her, shout out to Morehouse for making that possible. And then on the other end of that, you know, kind of dual athletic scholarship. So yeah, and that is something that is going on to this very day. And matter of fact, Morehouse Oprah Scholars, once we leave, we have our own scholarship fund now. Okay. To where, you know, students can kind of tap into that at a high school level. And we, too, have kind of carried on that right mission in that branch. So That's amazing. So you're paying it forward. And I mean, and the, the benefits become exponential into the community and in the world. So that's incredible. Exactly. Yeah. So great. So tell us about now, like the family medicine choice. So where'd you go to medical school and, and how'd you make the choice to go into family medicine? You know, when I went to University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, at the time it was a top five medical school. Very felt very fortunate to get in, you know, early admit. And so you know, when you go to medical school, the first two years, we're all studying in the books. Like you literally study like it's your job because it is. It is, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and when you're in a super competitive environment, you know, it takes on another context. So literally studying eight to 10 hours a day. But then that second half of school is when you get to rotate through these specialties. So I came in with the mind that, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon. I'm going to be an anesthesiologist, et cetera. And then you start to go through these rotations. Right. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this for the next 30 to 40 years. Mm -hmm. And initially, I thought I did want to do anesthesiology. And But you know what my very last rotation was? What was it? Family medicine. Wow. And I actually rotated with... He was a military physician. We actually did all the flight physicals, but he was in the mold of a smaller town physician, mm. right? And I actually, you know, usually you do your rotations in the med center. And so our hospital, kind of legendary hospital, Parkland, right? Mm -hmm. And for you guys that don't know, that's, you know, unfortunately where JFK was bought during that time in Dallas. And so okay. the training programs at Parkland are very rigorous and very strong, which is great, right, in terms of subspecialty care. Mm -hmm. And so I rotated through there. And then once I was able to go out and kind of see his impact on the community, see the relationships being established, right? And, and, these, and these are, you know, people that literally, you know, when you take care of family medicine, right, you're literally taking care of the whole family. The whole family and community, yeah. Exactly. So he has had patients that he had delivered and now they're like 15 and then you're seeing the mom, you're seeing the aunt, you're seeing the dad. That really resonated with me and the relationships that you're able to establish. And so 
for you, you guys that don't know and haven't been through that process, what you start to see in med school is that people kind of go where their personalities are. Right, right. And so I, this kind of resonated with me. So there was a, we talked to see that word pivot, right? And we'll yeah. come back to that. Mm -hmm. There was a pivot for me at that point and it was late in the game, right? Mm -hmm. So to the point to where I'd had to enter a kind of supple supplemental application to get into family medicine. So that last rotation, thank goodness, is what led me to this. Well, that's fascinating. I have to ask this. Well, a couple things come to mind. One reason why I really love this podcast and everyone's stories is that we can connect the dots. Like mm -hmm. your parents, I don't even know what field of medicine your father was in, but they were doing family and community, family medicine and community health. Exactly. Back then. And so I kind of see those seeds of your personal experience probably influencing you in this part of your journey you're talking about now. Exactly, because that was my frame, if you will, for what a physician is. It's like not only right. are you seeing folks, you're part of the community, you're involved in their lives, you're making an impact beyond clinical walls. And so it was the most familiar and it sat well with me and my spirit. I was like, you know what, mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to do because this is how I really want to make my impact as a physician, as a clinician moving forward. And so, what area of medicine was your father in? He's actually internal medicine. He was internal med, which and is, so, okay. Can you yeah. explain what that is for people? And So yeah. so family medicine deals with more of, it's more of a fuller scope. So in my residency, which we'll get to, I had full training, full spectrum training, as we call it, meaning mm -hmm. that there were nights when I was in the ICU and then I would go deliver a baby, then I would run to the NICU, then I'd Got run it. to the medical surgical floor. Right. Whereas internal medicine is really focused on kind of acute, but more chronic disease management, mm -hmm. probably less procedural, right. right? But they all, we should make this distinction when somebody says primary care, right? You're thinking family medicine, you're thinking internal medicine, and you're thinking OBGYN. And we'll go ahead and loop in our pediatric okay. colleagues and community health colleagues. So that really is an umbrella term. Mm. So to me, it's all maybe the way to think about it is like family medicine is somewhat like internal medicine, but I have a wider scope. I've done, I can do procedures in the office. And at one point I did obstetrical care. I'll just do hospital care. And so that really kind of branches them out a little bit, just a full spectrum, but make no doubt they're all primary care. They're all primary mm -hmm. care. That, that's fascinating. I mean, that that gives so much context too for, for what you do today and what we'll mm -hmm. get into with, with GP Health. But before we go there, tell, tell me a bit about, you're a senior physician at Kaiser Permanente in Northern Cali. Tell us a bit about that specific experience as you now go through residency and, and you go into the into practice and right. become one of our top family med docs. And mm -hmm. you've been asked to testify to Congress on different issues. And mm -hmm. so so tell me about like that experience with Kaiser and kind of how that also influences what you do today. Yeah. So I immediately, you know, left residency and I should say I was kind of encouraged to maybe do something a bit non-traditional. And Kaiser had recruited me out of residency my last year when I served as a uh, chief resident. So there was an opportunity to stay as a attending or, you know, kind of go and embark on this journey. Mm -hmm. And you have this large integrated health system that in some parts is responsible for 60 to 70% of the market share. Mm. So, you know, it was it was really this fellowship, if you will, of integrated care because it was a complete care model, right? right. Where they had the insurance and the physician group. And so it was very unique in terms of how they delivered care, right? And wow. so it wasn't just clinical care. They were in the community. There were several branches, right, that we collaborated with our mental health partners. So I was able to see how to deliver care 
to a macro level population in an efficient manner. I right. See. Before we move into this, the cancer story here, and, and right. I, I would love for you to tell people what GP Health does, which is your current enterprise, and why you left a more traditional practice to found GP Health. Right. So, you know, GP Health, in a nutshell, is a proactive preventative health service, right, where we really assess, formally assess, right? We also teach slash educate. Right. So building health literacy, core tenant and formally support our members in our community in their daily health journey through lifestyle. Right. And that really bores out of lived experience, but also data. Right. And mm -hmm. statistics. You know what I mean? When we look at healthcare, it's a four point five trillion dollar industry, not by design. Right. Right. Ninety percent of those dollars are spent on clinical right care. Clinical care is responsible for 10 to 20 percent of a health outcome. Right. So we're talking about, you know, we talk about venture. Me, you know, me and you will shoot it back and forth. So imagine you spending 90 percent of your dollars on 20 percent of the solution. Right? right. And so there's this whole other 70 to 80 percent that I've seen in my career that we're not even touching. Right. Right. So it's our belief that after you take into account genetic predispositions, right, mm -hmm. after you take into account key drivers of health, formerly known as social determinants of health. We're not using that term anymore. We know that that term got bottled up and disconnected to its, from its original intent. Mm -hmm. After you take that into account, it's really going to be about knowledge, access, right, and how we live our daily lives. Right. And there were several examples in my career that really led up to that point in terms of practice, observations, and lived experience. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And tell people a little bit more about how the model works. So <clears throat> we are, again, a proactive preventative health model. So very early on when someone shows interest before they even come to see me, we start to collect data on our members, right? And a lot of that data, it's not just, oh, do you have this in your family history? We're asking about their social constructs. We're asking about economic constructs. We get an idea of what their genetic predispositions may be. We get an idea of lifestyle, right, in our pre-visit questionnaire. So what that does is properly frame our initial conversation, which, by the way, is 60 to 70 minutes, whereas your normal doctor visit is going to be, I don't know, the average time is 14.8, if you right. know, 14.8 minutes spent with a physician, which, again, from prior observations, it's hard to establish trust and really hard to get to the root cause issues of why someone may be in poor health. Mm -hmm. So and what we, it sounds like is this model allows you to deeply personalize care. Exactly. So it becomes a very personalized experience. And from those pre-visit questionnaires, you're actually curating your experience, right? Because you're giving us what's important to you, right? And we're going to take a deep dive because in that visit, it's always been my style. And I think I quickly started to observe is like, do people have diabetes because we don't have enough insulin or do they have diabetes because, and I'm using this as example, mm -hmm. because there's not enough knowledge and understanding around, right? Some of these other non-clinical things that may cause them to have this particular illness. Right. So we're able to take a deep dive into diet, right, into movement, right, into just all things lifestyle in the context of whatever their disease status is. So at the end of that visit, we're going to know them personally. They're going to have help us curate this visit. It's going to be a motivational process, right, and also a teaching process. We'll have a preventative plan. For instance, if you are a 42-year-old black male, 
We may have suggested that you get a prostate-specific antigen, PSA. Mm -hmm. If you're a 40-year-old black female, we may have suggested a, uh, or suggested a mammogram. So you've got a preventative plan. Whereas the standard might be a little bit different, right, in terms of the age. Exactly. Because mm -hmm. now we know you deeply and personally, right? right? And so preventative plan, wellness plan. We definitely give you uh, what I call a lifestyle support app where there's content, on-demand content, recorded content, educational content for you to engage with on a daily basis, right? Mm. Because one of the disconnects that I see in clinical care is that, you know, in 15 minutes, we may tell you, ah, you need to eat better, yada, yada, yada. But there's, there's no longitudinal engagement to actually show you and move you in that direction and to motivate you. And so we have to be able to provide resources outside of the context of a clinical visit. And so hence us saddling our patients who everybody gets this lifestyle support app and access to our wellness store where they can buy kind of curated wellness products for them as well. That's amazing. And, and I think for our listeners, you can see why I wanted to bring Dr. Ahmad on for this conversation, because what I felt was really important is that we put context mm -hmm. around my prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment journey. And some of the themes that Dr. Ahmad's talking about are directly related to elements of my experience and also some of the things that lead to black men specifically falling through the cracks exactly. and dying unnecessarily. So so I'm so happy you kind of framed that up. So mm -hmm. let's now transition. So I want to now start to move into this conversation about my cancer journey. So for listeners, what we're going to do with this is, and we're going to break this into kind of five components, mm -hmm. right? That relate to the different points in time when there are different either information that I received or decisions to be made right. about what to do with my journey and then to ultimately get to recovery. So we're gonna talk about screening, we're gonna talk about my diagnosis, we're gonna talk about my treatment options, my treatment journey, mm -hmm. what was that like, and then recovery. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm very happy to share that I'm cancer-free. Um, yes. I had an eight-week appointment recently where my PSA was non-existent I'm back to my usual routines, feeling good. Um, and so I wanna put some context around that and that this is possible mm -hmm. for all black men with this condition. It is possible for us to get through this and not die unnecessarily. And that's why exactly. I feel like this is so important. So let's start by Dr. Ahmad giving a bit of context on, and this is through a men's health lens, just these types of issues around black men's health and cancer and some of what we're hearing so we can get some context around the challenge. Right. So when we talk about men's health in general and we look at and I'll just kind of focus on the top three. So for men's health, there's uh, cardiovascular health is kind of number one pathology disease process that we see in men. Right. OK. You know, I think eight hundred and. 75, 74,000 Americans pass from cardiovascular health each year. And we're talking about MIs or heart attacks. We're talking about strokes. We're talking about congestive heart failure, okay. hypertension. So that's some of an umbrella term, if you will. And then we quickly get down to kind of the topic while we're all here today, cancer, right? And it's usually we're thinking about prostate being number one. We're thinking about lung, right, when we break that down. And then we're also thinking about skin cancers, okay, right, and colorectal, right? So those are the four, when I think of cancer in men, those are the four that I have a kind of heightened awareness of. I would say it's interesting, and particularly for black men, skin cancer might, be, might not be one. It's interesting through that. It's not something I hear us talk about a lot. 
you know what? We don't. And I think <laughs> it's funny because I always tell my patients, like, you know, the skin is actually the biggest organ system. Mm. Think about that. And a lot of us never are screened. Right. So seeing a dermatologist once or twice in your life is not a bad thing. So I all I will bank that point with my even my melanated or all patients, but specifically my melanated patients is like, you may want to see a dermatologist and get a thorough skin exam, right? Because mm -hmm. These things are often not obvious, so you're exactly right. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Really good. So, and tell me about, you know, as we're talking about prostate cancer specifically, mm -hmm. let's kind of share for our listeners the state of play. So, prostate cancer is the leading cancer for men, exactly. generally. No matter what you look like, it's the leading cancer. Mm -hmm. Can you now break that down for us as you know, what is behind that? And maybe a little bit of context on what the prostate is and how this looks for black men. So the prostate is a part of the male reproductive system. It really sits, you know, behind, I should say, between the bladder and the rectum, right? And it has these two other organ, you know, seminal vesicles. And its job is really to create fluid to bathe the sperm, right? In general, we start to see changes in the prostate, whether it hypertrophies, i.e. grows, gets larger at around the age of 50, 55. So it's almost mm -hmm. kind of anticipated that we're gonna see some changes. You know, in general, also general statements will get more specific. We understand that as males age, especially once we get in our later years of life, 67, all of us may at some point have prostate cancer, but the thought is, is that it's indolent meaning slow growing. So you, that cancer, in some cases I've heard senior level clinicians say, it'll probably outlive you, right? Right. And so where we start to see a divergence is, and it's funny because even as a physician, prostate cancer is somewhat, I'm not gonna say a mystery to us, but we understand that we don't know everything about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like in terms of cause of prostate cancer, we know there's certain risk factors which I'll dive into, but there's thought to be some a DNA change that happens, right? And for those who are kind of non-clinical, non-scientific, what, what that does is instead of your body making normal cells, the DNA insult changes and you start to make cancer cells, right? Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, in African-American males and black men, that happens early. So the typical screening guideline is we should be screened between, males should be screened between the age of 55 and 79. Right. And so because I know this, and then we should also talk about the risk factors being age, mm -hmm. right? Again, when you read a textbook or medical literature, they start to talk about age 55. Right. So age is a risk factor, but ethnicity, right? Being a strong risk factor, African-American males, black men, matter of fact, one in four to one in six uh, black males during their lifetime may be diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so what you start to see because of different, right, key drivers of health, this change is happening earlier. Not only is it happening earlier, these subtypes are more aggressive, right? right. So we start to see mid 40s, early 40s, late 40s, whereas again, the screening is 55, right? So there's a divergence there in how this happens in different ethnicities to the point to where I think the number is 187 per 100,000. And then the closest group, which is um, non-Hispanic whites is somewhere in, you know, I think 110 to 113. So there's a if you if you see a graph, there's like a big disparity here, but right. there's a lot of reasons why. 
And then we should also say, and you've mentioned this, family history, right? Mm -hmm. So those of you, so you know it's more prevalent in black men. We know that those who have a first degree relative are two to three times more likely to be diagnosed. And when we say first degree relative, like for me, that's my father who, shout out to my dad, had prostate cancer as well when I was in medical school. And, you know, mm-hmm. thank God he's well, do, thriving, doing well. And so now that makes me more at risk. So father, sibling, right? Right. First degree relative. So for you, that would be father, brother, right? right. So. Got it. And I have a younger sister. So, mm-hmm. and my father does not have prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know. Let's so let's move let's move into this kind of framework described. So for listeners, I want to start by talking about screening and my mm-hmm. screening journey cuz this actually is very likely the reason why I'm here now and why yeah. I'm 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 happy to say I'm cancer free is that I got screened early. But what was intriguing to me and was continued to go through my mind is frankly I got lucky. I remember you saying that. And so then I have to ask myself why is it that I got lucky? that I got screened and with all the background and public health and training and knowledge I have and privilege I have in this space, I still got lucky. Mm -hmm. And this immediately led me to think about all the people that are falling through the cracks and dying unnecessarily. So for listeners, this is how it played. So as I mentioned, I'm not afraid to share my age. I'm a 42 year old black male. I exercise regularly. I was a college athlete in terms of my personal wellness journey. Part of what has led me to be a little bit, let's say, proactive about my health is that I'm the son of immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. And being someone in public health, what that means is that I'm cut off from information about my broader family history of different types of chronic ailments. Both my parents are Ghanaian. Most of my extended family lives in Ghana today. I have no idea what ailments they may have. A lot of them you know, in those contexts, people die of things young and they're just like, oh, they died young. No one may know. Right. This leads me to believe that probably in my family in Ghana, there's some genetic history of this prostate cancer and men have been dying of this and people haven't known why or what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of, you know, as I have two young kids, some I have a 12 year old son and a nine and a half year old daughter. As a public health person, I started thinking that I wanted to build a kind of health profile that would not only empower my own longevity, but get more information to my kids about what their risk factors might be. And so generally, I would say I'm someone that has been fairly proactive about going to my wellness appointments. Mm -hmm. But I've told you why. So now for the screening, I went in earlier this year, and all my typical indicators look normal, even good. Blood pressure, A1C, there's really nothing, no symptoms. So there's nothing to say that I was sick or that I had basically stage two moderately aggressive cancer, no indicator. And the way this happened is my physician, who's an internal med doc, Mm -hmm. at the end of the wellness check, he just on a whim was like, wait, have we done a PSA for you lately? And I was like, no. And he's like, you know what, let's run a PSA. I have to tell you, you know, I really believe it was my angels, the ancestors looking out because there was nothing else mm-hmm. to really drive this call to do the screening. And when he did it, my number was really high. And I didn't even know what the number meant, but you know, he gave me a number and he was like, this is really high. I was like, okay. 
I was like, what's it supposed to be? And when he told me what it was supposed to be, I was like, mm, okay. He's like, let's run this again and just make sure it wasn't a fluke. We ran it again, it was high. He was like, I need to send you to a urologist right away. This is how we even got to detecting I had cancer, this screening. So I'm gonna now pass the mic to, to Dr. Mm -hmm. Ahmad to, you know, I have so much I wanna share, but to help put some framework around this so that we can really uh, get the information out. But that was how I got to that point. Right, right. So I think that was a perfect frame up because there's a lot in there, right? And why men, specifically men of color, kind of fall through the cracks. So can you, you've kind of laid out why you went down this path of screening, but can you tell us how you felt, right? You already established that, hey, I wanted to be proactive and kind of preventative on my health. So how did you feel when that was even introduced to you the, the prospects of uh, screening your prostate, knowing that you were otherwise felt healthy. Yeah, so I mean, I think like, you know, one of the issues I always kind of had with my doc, and I have a great doc, was referred to me through my father-in-law. So just to share, how did I even get to this doctor? So I live in Denver, Colorado. As a black person in this country, we know that it can be a pain to find a doctor that we trust. It just, mm -hmm. it's the truth. And so I'm moving to a new city, I'm newly married, my son is born, and my first thing was to go to my father-in-law to ask, well, who's his doctor? I was like, okay, that's his doc, let me go try him out. Um, he's a white male, internal med doc, good doc. At that time, your 15-minute thing definitely was an issue. He was working in a health system. I felt he was a good guy, but everything felt rushed. It was usually 15-minute meetings. And I share this because he was so frustrated with his experience, very much like mm -hmm. what you described, the 15 minute appointment and not being able to offer the quality of care that he wanted, that he stepped out of the hospital and started his own practice, basically a concierge practice where you pay an annual fee right. along and they take insurance and you get annual checkups, you get connected to wellness services. If you have an issue, he can refer you to the best docs for it. Right. You get more time. I get the hour, hour and a half session with him once a year and get the full screen. And you know, as a young person, I was at the lowest tier of the rate and my wife was like, why are you moving? Why are you paying this money out of pocket? You already have insurance. And I was like, well, to me, I look at it as the cost of trust. I would rather pay, and I know I have the privilege and ability to pay for this, but it's my health mm -hmm. and I'm a public health guy. I would rather pay this annual fee to know that I can stick with this doctor that I trust, right? Mm -hmm. But like there was always a running theme in our conversations and, he, and it usually would go like this. He would say, you know, because you're a black male, you're more likely for this and that. Mm -hmm. And I always had this conflicted feeling. I was like, well, is this because I'm a black male or is this genetics or what? Like I'm physically active, I'm proactive about my health. And I always, it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, are we glossing over certain things? But I have to be completely honest. The evidence shows black men are more at risk of these cancers. And at the end of the day, he was using the evidence to screen me. And that actually is what got me screened, a combination of I paid my trust tax. I just call it a trust tax in our US system. Mm -hmm. I paid the trust tax to stay with this doctor who was able to give sufficient time to do the wellness check. And he looked at the evidence and said, you know what, KP's 42, I don't have much information. You know what, I should probably screen him for this. And that is how we got to the result. And I, I actually think it would have been very unlikely that if I was in any other situation that this would have gotten caught. Right, exactly. So you hit up on a bunch of a lot to unpack here, right? Trust, right? And having access to a trusted 
person, physician who has your best interest at heart. But also to me as a physician, you are asymptomatic, meaning without symptoms. So how do you have this index of suspicion to even suggest this to someone? Right. And you have to, again, know the data, know the literature, right? Know the research, but far too often, that's not even offered to someone in your position, especially right in the macro level scheme of health. Right. And there's a lot of reasons that that doesn't happen. So now we have the diagnoses. Now we have kind of the screening. And, and, and tell me this. Did you understand? Did you even know what should be done for screening for prostate cancer? <laughs> so I'll tell you this. So <laughs> my wife, who, you know, we met in public health school um, we were at Yale. We were both co-founders of In On Health. She reminded me of something. In our first year epidemiology class at Yale, hmm. there's a case study that we did, and this is in the early 2000s, on cost effectiveness around cancer, specifically prostate cancer screening. And the issue she reminded me of, and I have to be honest, I totally forgot about that. I don't even know how she remembered this <laughs> from like 15 years ago, but you know my wife, the brain's a, a steel trap. Mm -hmm. So she was like, it's the issue of false positives. So the cost effectiveness issue in prostate cancer screening is really about the risk of false positives. Right. And with that risk, and I'll have you explain this more deeply for our listeners, at what age is it appropriate to start screening? Now, what I realized as I started thinking about that in today's context is that the way we were trained on this issue in public health school in the early 2000s did not have an equity lens. So it was a cost effectiveness analysis around false positives for prostate cancer screening. And this still remains the reason today why the average screening age from the CDC is 55. But if you look at the data now and we look at racial and ethnic disparities in outcomes, it would tell you that we should not have one uniform screening standard. And so this is what's funny. So I didn't even remember this. So I went home and started talking to my wife. She's like, well, remember this thing, the false positives? Like, you know, because I, I hadn't really remembered that element. And so I, I kind of knew a bit about my PSA, but I have to be completely honest, even as the public health person I am, I didn't know a lot about it, or I would say enough. Right, right. And, and I think that's an important point to note there is that a lot of that data does not have equity mixed into it, right? And so we clearly know that the data shows this is happening earlier in certain uh, certain ethnic groups, racial ethnic groups. And so when you apply that lens, you have to take, and it's always why, you know, I've always taken a personalized approach, right? And then we should also kind of frame for the audience what the screening, right, recommendations and kind of techniques are. Please. So one screening modality which you got and when you say hey that number was high is what we call prostate specific antigen otherwise known as PSA and it's a blood test right mm -hmm. and so if we see a value above a certain point that increases our index of suspicion right mm -hmm. but what also is unique about PSA it can be elevated for other reasons aside from prostate I cancer see. Right. And so when we talk about false positive, that's that's another thing that you have to consider. So it can be elevated if the prostate is enlarged, which doesn't necessarily mean you have cancer. It can be elevated if you have an infection of the prostate. Right. And it can be elevated by trauma. Matter of fact, like if I do a digital rectal exam, right, which is the other piece of the equation that we put together, the PSA with the digital rectal exam, I can at times falsely elevate that value. 
Mm, I see. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So what we're doing to screen, and this is again why prostate cancer remains this, in my mind, you know, completely unsolved mystery. We're getting closer. Is that there are several pieces of information that have to be put together along with who you are as a person, what your age is, your genetics, your ethnicity, and these things all come into play. Right. So, so important points to make here of how sometimes people fall through the cracks, if you will. Right. And we even see this in colorectal cancer, right? And, and in lung cancer. And right. I know that's not the topic of discussion. So, so the net here, Dr. Ahmad, is that really, and I, there's two things I want to ask. So one, mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of us working in this work, we need earlier screening for people of color exactly. around these drivers. In other words, the way the CDC recommendation works, if you're a black man in this country, it is not likely you're going to be asked this question. Correct. So this is why we have to be proactive and get on offense for mm -hmm. now. But I also think there's a policy thing here that needs to happen too. Exactly. Which is these standards because insurance, because the issue becomes insurance, right? So if insurance won't pay for screening or it's not recommended in the clinical decision support and you have 15 minutes as a clinician to see a patient, you're just going to gloss over it. So I think some of what I'm hearing is that we need our folks to be asking for this. Exactly. You being a, and we can touch on this, how being a quote unquote activated patient, meaning that you're aware of what we're talking about, can start to, you know, in some ways negate bias, right? Mm. Or, or negate, right, poor outcomes. And so this is important. And I, matter of fact, if you're a black male and you see Dr. Gary Price, I start talking to you about PSA at 40. And right. you can choose to do it or choose not to do it. But this is how we get to these end goals and these end answers are kind of being personal advocates for ourselves, although it should not be our job to have to do that mm -hmm. in every scenario. Well, right. But, you know, being informed of the data, statistics and outcomes can certainly kind of change a complete outcome. Well, let me ask you this, too, because I don't want to gloss over something I brought up earlier, which is this feeling of. Is it my blackness that made me more prone to this? Or is it some genetic risk factor? I know there's a lot of research, cutting edge research on genetic predisposition for certain types yeah. of cancers. But can you break this down? Like, so, I mean, I know we're kind of talking about this, like we need screening for people of color, for black men, but what's the real issue here? Do we think there's something genetic or is it a combination of gene and environment? Or like, what is the real driver outside of us just saying like, is my blackness as a man that makes me need to do this? You know what, probably all of the above. And remember we, we, we framed and we stated that fact how hundred we have 100% of a health outcome and 20% is clinical. Mm -hmm. So now we start to see in real life and real action how these other non-clinical things that can, can come into play. Right. So again, we've talked age, we've talked ethnicity, and we've talked family history. But we have to go ahead and now move down to key drivers, socioeconomic factors as well. So mm -hmm. the thought is, is that you know, diets, high calorie diets, rich in animal fats, right? Mm -hmm. And refined sugars can certainly be a driver for this. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, right? I've heard people say cancer loves sugar. Cancer definitely loves sugar. Inflammation, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. one of the reasons we have to start screening earlier for colorectal cancer. So for everybody out there, a little tidbit is that 
the screening for colorectal cancer has moved up because of right consistent inflammatory insults to a colon bought, a, bought about by Western diets or lifestyle. So mm. now we start thinking about this at age 40 and 45. And again, relevant for prostate cancer because now you think about this early, right? In a group who has, we know, maybe the Western diet is not the, not the best, but our diets are not the best in African-Americans, but also having access and not just having, you know, we talk about baseline access, but who and what you have access to, right, mm -hmm. right, becomes part of this. So we start to look at socioeconomic factors, key drivers. We start to, now we branch into systemic racism. Now we branch into access. Now we branch into trust, right? Okay. Right? So these are kind of key drivers of why we see what we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I, so just to also pin, put a pin in this, you mentioned something else that listeners should be aware of that for whatever reason for black men the cancer also tends to be more aggressive mm -hmm. we haven't gotten into the interest of time all the science of that but there's a gleason score exactly that's involved in kind of diagnosing like how aggressive mm -hmm. this cancer is and for me it was not only was it early but it was it was defined as moderately aggressive mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, for black men, it seems like the cancer is more aggressive, which common sense would tell you would lead to worse outcomes. Exactly. Particularly if you're saying that as a physician, basically, you're expecting the majority of your male patients to just get prostate. So this isn't going to surprise you when you see it. Mm -hmm. But if typically the cancer spreads slowly, can be monitored, there are lots of treatment options. And right. let's say for white men. Mm hmm the cancer is grows slower and is less aggressive, that would also lead you to think there'd be generally better outcomes just for that reason. Exactly. And so a key point that you're making here with it being more aggressive, if you think about it, we've talked about access and who and what you have access to. So in general, black men are not seeing physicians on an annual basis. And we tend to show up when things are wrong, right? Mm -hmm. We now have symptoms you were, without symptoms. But what we typically see is because people are showing up later because of whatever reason, right? We know these key drivers of health, you show up later, you're detected later, therefore it's more aggressive, right? Uh, the outcome okay. is gonna be poor. So that's, in my personal practice, that's usually the sequence of events. I can't tell you how many times I thought in my head, I was like, man, I wish you would have been here sooner, right? Because we would have had a different conversation, which, Again, going back to your story, I think was so fortunate, right? The blessings there to be able to have that conversation that early. Mm -hmm. So so you're exactly right. But that's usually the sequence, like late presentation, more aggressive tumor, right? Therefore, treatment options are different and outcomes are different. Right. And we have to say something here, like men generally aren't great about their health. So someone say this is universal. This isn't a black male issue. This is an issue of men generally aren't necessarily proactive about their health. And oftentimes we talk about women and now talking about in, in households, you know, Ashley Wisdom in a prior yeah. podcast talked about women as the chief health officer in their home. So, you know, a lot of this also is in that context of what you talked about in the very beginning about our family and community health and ensuring that we're pressuring people in our community <laughs> to do this, right? And in, and in many ways, it's, it's women, it's, it's our women who are the chief health officers and that also need to hear this because they're the ones that are often trying to get their men to go in. You know what? You know, 
A shout out to Ashley Witherspoon, Health in Our Hue, and the work that she's doing. That's incredible. We need that work being done. But she's exactly right. They are a lot of ways the chief health, chief medical officers of our households. And me being a, a black physician, what I see when a black man normally comes to see me, why are you here? I don't know. My wife made the appointment. Right, right. <laughs> it's right. like, I don't know what you're going to do. I'm just here because she made the appointment. And it's like, let's get on with it. Right. Or something's wrong and they've now been made to kind of come see me. Mm -hmm. And so what I have observed in practice, and we have good literature that shows this, like the matriarch for sure is responsible for health decisions in households. So, yes, they are the super women of our household that really will drive the health of the household and in terms of seeing the physician, but also just in terms of lifestyle in general. So important point to make there. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so moving on, because we really want to spend time on screening because mm -hmm. this is the, the tip of the sword in this issue, right? So it's like, really, we got to get screening right to get to have more options mm -hmm. to mediate negative outcomes. This podcast episode is packed with a lot of important information. For that reason, we're breaking it up into two parts. Look forward to part two of this conversation with Dr. Ahmad Garrett Price next week.